We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello to everyone listening to The Planet Mask. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me J. Max Slaughter, and he's actually a local MD through the Texas Health Resource Hospitals. Um, but you'd also probably know him through his viral TikTok videos like Dr. J. Max Slaughter. And also, you know, through his acting career in film and TV, as well as nonprofit work with Music Meets Medicine. So this was kind of a conversation that I think originally popped up because, um, you know, I've done some blog interviews primarily with people kind of in the ICU. So when I kind of saw, um, you know, J-Max Slaughter pop up into kind of recent blog posts and, you know, saw some of his news features, I thought kind of, you know, having a conversation on, you know, what nonprofit work can do in the medical world and also just his experience in the ER during COVID, you know, I thought was very interesting. So thank you again, man, for, you know, taking out the time today to, you know, come on the podcast episode and, you know, be open to an interview. Dude, I'm stoked to be here, man. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. Well, I kind of wanted to, I guess, with the interview, really start off with your beginnings, uh, you know, kind of from a film and TV background. Uh, you know, I thought that was interesting when I kind of saw, you know, as a kid, you're kind of growing up uh, doing a lot of acting. And I, I think it was the Casa Mana Theater. Uh, so yeah, I was kind of wondering, like, uh-huh. you know, did you start off earlier in acting or did you start start off earlier in like music? Well, so they're both so intertwined, you know, it's really hard to tease them out. So when I was three, um, I ended up joining my family singing group and we'd perform on stage together. Literally myself and my two older sisters would be on stage, like singing and like dancing around. And my dad was playing guitar and singing on stage. And my mom is actually a really talented percussionist, but she had terrible stage fright. So she was like the manager of the band. And she made sure that we practiced and then we made sure that like all of our outfits were like coordinated and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we'd perform around town in Fort Worth and in Dallas and people would like, you know, hire us to come and do like their family reunions and stuff like whatever venues that like a family band does, we did. And then, like you said, I ended up doing a lot of acting at Casa Mignana as well, pretty much simultaneously with the family band, I guess. You know, chronologically speaking, Family Band came first because I was on stage at like three with that. But with acting, it was around like six or seven when I started doing plays and musicals. It cost a Yana. And that's a professional theater in Fort Worth. And I believe, man, I believe they sat 1,300 people when I was there. It was theater in the round. So it was a really amazing venue to get to hone your craft in and get that experience being on stage and being comfortable in front of a significant amount of people. Mm-hmm. And kind of when you're, you know, in Fort Worth in such a major play set 
and you know being in front of some people what was that like did that come naturally to you as a kid were you always like an extrovert uh, on you know being in front of so many people you know it's kind of funny because when you start that young you just don't even think about it you know i mean when you're like you know like 13 14 and get on stage for the first time either somebody is pushing you on that stage or you're like, I'm destined to be on stage. You know, like it's not, you don't just like end up on stage and then think about it later. That's kind of how it happened with me. Cause I was three, you know, like mm-hmm. the, my older sisters were doing it. And my mom was like, stand here and smile and like, you know, clap to the rhythm. And I was like, I can do that. And so I just did it. Cause that's what everybody else in my family was doing. And so, you know, would would I have been destined to be on the stage if I didn't grow up in a family like that, maybe, but because of the way I grew up, I really can't tease out, you know, like nature versus nurture, you know, it's just like part of who I am is performing. And when I'm not doing it, I don't feel whole, which is, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, how, where I'm finally getting to the point where I'm fusing my, my past self, which was, you know, a stage performer and TV and film performer with kind of the the career that I, you know, ended up growing into, which was uh, as a doctor and as a physician. And so both of them are finally like meeting for the first time and it's a freaking blast. <laughs> I wanted to ask like, so with like kind of a foot in both worlds of, um, you know, acting and music, I, I think I've asked people this question before, but like, is there any maybe plays or films that you respect a lot just from a musical like perspective or, you know, they have an amazing soundtrack? Cause I know like yes. for me, I'm much, I consider myself much more of like a, I guess if I were to choose one, like more of a film guy than music. So like a lot of my mm. kind of music genres I listen to or songs on my soundtracks is kind of influenced on like recent movies or classic movies I've seen. Oh, that's uh, cool. You know, is there any, I guess, movies or plays like you think, you know, don't get enough credit from like a music perspective? Huh, that's a good point. You know, I, I personally do when I, when I watch movies, I'm not always consciously aware of it, but I will selectively love movies that have amazing soundtracks, you know? There are movies where when you kind of, you know, if, if you just objectively look at the storyline by itself or the acting by itself, maybe it's not actually that amazing. But with a good enough score, with a good enough musical score, it's one of my favorite movies ever. You know, any movie, I literally was just talking to somebody about this the other day because I saw the musical Come From Away that is about um, all the planes that were in the air when 9-11 happened. And so they ground, they, they grounded all of these planes simultaneously because they all of a sudden were bomb threats. Every plane in the air was a bomb threat. And so they grounded all of them in Newfoundland, like this tiny, tiny little place and these tiny, tiny uh, little cities surrounding. And all these people that were on all these planes ended up like, you know, living in an area. There were, I don't know how many tens of thousands of people who all of a sudden were in an area that has the infrastructure to hold like maybe three or 4,000 people, you know? And, um, And the whole culture is very Irish, in its roots and the music is very Irish in like driving and uplifting and happy and you know and um, and and I love the musical and I you know I grew up doing theater and stuff but musicals honestly aren't my thing when it comes down to like the form of entertainment that I'd like to watch it's gonna be movies over musicals every single time but 
with the right musical score, man. I'm in it. And I was so in this movie, uh, in this uh, musical. I really loved it. Um, and it was also really special at the end, too, because, you know, the band came out. It was a live band the whole time during the musical. And they came out on stage and just jammed for like five minutes. And the whole audience is like clapping perfectly to the rhythm and everybody's masked. And it was this moment of liberation coming out of the pandemic. I hadn't seen live music in a year and a half, maybe. And like, honestly, I got a little choked up just like feeling that energy and feeling that community of all of these people together having this beautiful experience. And, um, and, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like the, I guess the effects and like the positive realization you have with live music, I wanted to kind of ask like next, um, you know, really with your early background, it seems like you, uh, you were able to kind of jump onto like the, I guess the, the full on boy band trend, uh, you know, when, <laughs> uh, you went on to the, uh, kiss FM, did, did you want to kind of expand on, you know, how that started out or, you know, did you yeah. like reach out or were there like open applications? Like how did that? So what it was, out? was it was, it was all put together on this radio show. So Dallas based radio DJ, Kid Craddock, he had the Kid Craddock morning show. It actually became nationally syndicated. Um, but what they did was they basically said, anybody who wants to be in this boy band, show up at this mall at this time and we're going to have open auditions. And I wasn't a listener of the show at the time, um, but my mom's friend was like, J-Mac has to go, J-Mac has to go. And I was like, I don't want to be in a boy band. <laughs> they were like, you got to do it. You got to do it. You, you've been on stage your whole life. You belong in this thing. And then I kind of looked at it more like a role, you know, like I'm taking on an acting role. And I was like, all right, well, maybe I can do it. And I auditioned and I was one of the younger people to show up. You actually had to be 16 to audition for the band, but I lied. I was only 15 at the time. <laughs> it like changed my birthday and everything. And, uh, and I got voted into the band by the listeners of the radio show. And this was back when radio was king, you know? Radio is kind of losing that title right now. Um, you know, podcasts and, you know, presence on social media and stuff are kind of taking that stage. But at the time, radio and TV, man, that's, that's all there really was in movies. Um, and so the power of the radio was very evident, though, because the audience voted on who got in the boy band. Fortunately, I made the cut. And our very first show, we had 4,000 people show up. Our first time on stage together in front of a live audience. And there were 4,000 people there. Um, and so we knew that we were destined for big things. And so, you know, we really just committed everything we had to it. I was, you know, age about 15 to a little over 17 when I was in the group. And we went from you know, playing at local malls and having 4,000 to 6,000 people there to literally touring with Destiny's Child. And we did one show in front of 75,000 people. Granted, they weren't all there for us. It was like a New Year's show, but we'd still performed in front of 75,000 people and did these really big shows. And I dedicated so much of my time and energy toward, you know, perfecting that craft as, you know, playing a role of a boy band member and, um, and, and it was just a wonderful experience and ended up leading me to Los Angeles where I then had a, a career in TV and film. Mm-hmm. And like with the first show of that size, like so early on, I mean, as the first show, like how, how much practice practice was there beforehand? Like, uh, you know, was there, I guess, natural chemistry between you and the other bandmates at, when going there into was. it? There was. We literally like the the first time that we were on the radio show together as a group, 
um, we got together the night before at a Chili's <laughs> and all started singing together. And one of the guys in the group, the oldest guy in the group, actually, he was only 21, but he was the old guy in the group, right? Mm -hmm. And he was a music major at UNT, which University of North Texas is world renowned for their jazz program. Mm -hmm. And he was um, a jazz music major there at UNT. So we had very formal training and he really understood um, chord structure and harmonies. And so he gave us all our notes and boom, we were in four part harmony immediately. And the next morning we sang together on the show and the radio show all like looked at each other and they were like, this was going to be a joke, but you guys are awesome. So let's go, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no and uh, how long was like that, uh, I guess, momentum going on before, I guess, the band decided that they wanted to um, go off on different creative outlets? So it was about two, two and a half years, I think, of us being together constantly. I mean, we truly were brothers. We saw each other every single day, you know, for better or for worse, whether we, we were good moods or bad moods or healthy or sick, you know, we're like sleeping on air mattresses next to each other and like skeezy motels and stuff. And, <laughs> um, and two, two to two and a half years, man, of, of really working very, very hard all together towards a common goal. And there's, there's a beautiful bond that, that you really develop during a dense experience like that, that, that we'll have for the rest of our lives, whether we see each other, you know, once a year, once every five years, once every 10 years. Um, but after that two, two and a half years, we, you know, saw the boy band craze at the time coming to an end because it comes in waves, you know, uh, one direction came, whatever, four or five years later. And it's all it's all cyclical. There'll be another huge boy. I mean, I guess um, be what's the name? What's the name of the Korean boy band that's like huge right now? Oh, um, BTS. BTS. Thank you very much. I should know that. I should be like the expert of boy bands, but I was always just playing a role. You know what I mean? But yeah, BTS. Yeah. It's just, they, they come in waves. There's always going to be a boy band that's either on the rise or kind of on the fall. But you know, I saw, we all saw that wave at the time kind of ending. And I was like, you know, there's some cool opportunities for me. I'd been writing music and playing guitar for years. And it was a little bittersweet for me to be on stage playing in front of thousands of people and it not be my music, you know? Um, and so I was very enthusiastic about being able to pursue that. And, you know, uh, fortunately I was starting to get options like those in Los Angeles. And so I talked to the guys and they were like, we agree. This is going to come to an end at some point. Let's just, let's just do it now. Um, and one in particular, I'm not gonna call anybody out, but one in particular did not agree with that and really held a grudge um, for a while. Uh, but mm. recently kind of forgave me. So <laughs> we're good now. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so you kind of mentioned on the transition from, you know, being out on the road, uh, you know, two and a half years with uh, this boy band and working on the music career. And you're kind of getting offers into more acting and film work. And mm -hmm. so so which area? So where'd you move out to? And what was like the first uh, film project at the time? So the big draw for me to move to Los Angeles, and I did this at 17 with, with my parents. They moved out there with me, knowing that it was going to be temporary. And once I turned 18, they were going to, if things were stable, they were going to move back, um, was kind of like a solo music project. And so that was the plan when I first went out there was to be a solo singer songwriter, release an album, have it be kind of in the vein of like, you know, John Mayer, stuff like that. 
um, who was who was king of the solo singer songwriter world at the time. You know, since then you got your Ed Sheeran's and this and that, but at the time it was all John Mayer, mm-hmm. and um, and that you know reached a certain level of opportunity, but it was very overshadowed by the opportunities that were presenting themselves in TV and film. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, I'll do this TV and film stuff, but only because it's going to support my music, you know. And so I would go out to these different auditions and, and it was with a huge um, acting agency, uh, United Talent Artist Agency, UTA. Um, I'm not sure where they're ranked right now, but at the time they were like number two or number three as far as um, acting agencies in the world. And so it was a very um, well-respected agency that I was very lucky to be represented by. And so I really kind of took that opportunity and ran. I did some uh, you know, guest starring episodes on this Amanda Pine show called What I Like About You. I worked on another show, which was like this tiny little show, a Warner Brothers show, but it was with Tim Curry from Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know? So I got to work with a legend, um, which was really awesome, but it was on like some stupid project. And then later on, um, I ended up landing a full-blown series deal where I was on as a series regular for an entire year. Um, The whole show was kind of about um, a young boy and his mom, um, with kind of, you know, like having, having trouble, like getting roughed up in the city and stuff like that, moving into their best friend's house, kind of in the suburbs. And my mom and I were white and the family was black. And at the time, you know, kind of before modern family and stuff like that, that was kind of like an interesting plot line in and of itself. But what was really cool about it is that it was never in your face race-based. It was always all just about the love and the family and um, and really ascending above all of those labels, and, uh, mm-hmm. and and it was a really fun show to work on. And if I if that show didn't get canceled, I would have stayed on that show forever. I just I had so much fun mm. showing up every single day. It was so exciting, and it was a comedy. And so they're constantly rewriting the script. Like, did this joke work? Did that joke work? Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? And so I was constantly rememorizing material all the time. Um, and, and working on things and it was so stimulating and meeting new people and it was just the best experience ever man and mm-hmm. um, little did I know that the act of memorizing all this material um, that would lead me to my future success in medicine because that's what you do for like 11 years is you're just like memorizing an obscene amount of information you know mm-hmm. and uh, and the everything that I did and music and in acting with all the memorization that you have to do because it's more than just like memorizing your lines you have to internalize it it's more than memorizing lyrics for a song if you're truly going to perform it you have to like know it in and out you have to like live and breathe that material to truly be able to perform something and not just sing it or not just act it right Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how medicine is too is that you can't just like have the information in your brain you have to really kind of deeply understand that information and how to apply that to the hospital setting and the patient encounter and stuff Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I kind of forgot to um, ask about you, you kind of touched up earlier on like the idea that really acting wasn't it, it wasn't like your main direction when you first moved out there mm-hmm. and that you're kind of doing it to like help out your uh, music career when you're trying to go right. out individually from the recent band you're in. Was there, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, like a specific image or like personality, you know, your solo 
music was trying to present because i know with like sometimes or like that you had when you're in that band because i know sometimes with like boy bands you know sometimes <laughs> yeah. you have to make sure everyone has kind of like a different personality or kind of like yeah, everyone yeah, bring yeah. a different story <laughs> into it i was kind of wondering yeah you know, well was you're a hundred percent right yes in the boy band i was the baby i was the baby of the boy band because i was the youngest one you know um and so and then we had like you know, the bad boy was this guy, Kevin, and he was like all ripped up, you know what I mean? He had spiky hair. And, and then we had just like the really amazing vocalist. And then we had the, and so we all had our roles. And then, but that when, when it went to kind of my solo career, I didn't, I don't think that I was ready yet to be the creative mastermind behind an entire artist. I was good at writing songs. I was good at performing. I was good at playing guitar but I wasn't yet ready to build a brand. And that was my shortcoming, I think, as a 17 to 19 year old kid trying to make it in a place like Los Angeles. Is I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for that yet. And, and what's also interesting is that there are, there are like optimal times to get connected to very powerful people and you don't wanna get connected to them too early in your career, you know? And in, in acting, it doesn't matter as much because all you have to do is land one role and then you're that guy. Like I, the TV show that I was on for an entire year, I basically in the TV and in film world, I was nobody until I landed that one role and then I became that guy. And then it was like, oh, he's that guy with the TV show. And then that's what led to the movie that I was in, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, one, one door kind of leads to the next one. And, and in music, you need to develop who you are first before you go to these big labels and these big managers and stuff like that. You can't really just go in there with a dream and with some good songs. All of that needs to be fully realized first. And I didn't know that at the time. And so I ended up in bigger rooms than I really was ready for. And so it's almost like I peaked a little bit too early with my solo project because of the connections I made through the boy band. Mm -hmm. When you kind of bring up like the idea of, you know, uh, kind of enjoying even at a young age, like the writing process behind music, mm -hmm. was that ever um, when you went into any film or TV projects was like the idea of anything behind the scenes ever interest you or did you kind of like to um, focus solely on just acting? Not at all. None of that interests me <laughs> at all at the time. I wanted nothing to do with the creative process. I just wanted to like show up and like act and then go home and work on music or like hang out with my friends or what I was just so focused on just like being a teenager because I did lose a lot of that time you know with the boy band and touring and rehearsing and recording and so part of me people say that I'm very childlike and 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 maybe that you know is in part due to the fact that I was a workhorse growing up I really was I was on stage from three to like 20 or 21, I really, you know, I got, I spent quality time with my friends and sleepovers and this and that, but I worked way more than the average child. And, um, and because of that, I do have like a child life nature or childlike nature that I think is never going to go away, but I don't see that as a negative. I don't see that as like a Michael Jackson weird, like I'm going to buy a Neverland ranch where I'm going to invite little boys to, you know, like none of that. Mm -hmm is manifested with what happened to me. But I do feel like part of how I approach my life is more childlike because of the workhorse that I was um, kind of growing up. Um, what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> 
oh, did I want to be behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. I didn't at the time. Uh, again, because I, I really wanted to be efficient with my time and be able to recapture some of that chill time that I didn't really get before. But now, now what I'm really enjoying with how everything has come full circle is that now I not only am the performer, but I'm the writer, I'm the lighting guy, I'm the videographer, I'm the editor, I'm the, the sound designer. You know, I'm like, I, I have to embody all these roles for TikTok. And I'm actually currently in talks with people that are going to help me to develop a YouTube channel and to, to get more content out there so I'm not standing in my own way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, for the time being, I'm really enjoying having that behind the camera role. Also, it's fun mm-hmm. being creative like that. It really is. Mm-hmm. Well, when you kind of bring up like the idea of everything coming full circle, so I definitely wanted to ask about. I, I guess the moment where you decided that you wanted the career change from you know a totally different world of acting and film work and going into the medical field. Was it, um, you know, simply were you not enjoying the projects you were on or did you just uh, you weren't getting the same excitement as you possibly used to? Um, or did you just think like, you know, I'll be able to take some of these skills and totally change lives and, you know, philanthropy and medical field? So you're, you're basically asking, like, was I was I frustrated with with my career and um, and ready to move away from it completely? Or did I think I could take those skills and pull them into the, the world of medicine? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had no clue at that time that I was ever going to be able to utilize the skills that I had created and the experience that I had growing up in the world of medicine. I thought I was leaving it behind completely. And that was my goal, actually, at the time. And, and it's almost like, you know, when you're in a relationship with somebody and, you know, you're just like, inseparable um and and you're together all day every day and then you realize that it's not going to work out long term Mm -hmm. you don't want to just like take a break and then hang out a little bit more and then take a break and then hang out a little bit more you want to cut it off completely because it's just like too emotional to even reconnect and that's Mm -hmm. how i felt with tv and film and music and and all of it. I when I left the entertainment field, I thought that I was done forever. I didn't even pick up a guitar for two years. It makes me so sad to think about that. That two whole years were gone, and you know, improving on my craft and writing more music and journaling the experiences that I was having. But I needed that. I needed that separation to be able to fully move forward with the next stage in life. And it didn't all come back together really or start to come back together until my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer while i'm an undergrad at, at, at tcu in fort worth and she started chemo treatments and the chemo treatments were just absolutely miserable and my sisters and i are are watching our own mother just like nauseous and in pain and uncomfortable and the minutes seem to tick by so slowly and excruciatingly and um and so the the next chemo session we brought our instruments and and we played and we sang and we were like playing like the family music that we would sing together when we were like children you know and and that room just like turned upside down and it was just like so happy and uplifting and there was so much love in the room 
and excitement and people were wheeling by at the time music therapy wasn't a thing people from the other chemo rooms were like wheeling by in wheelchairs to like look into our room to see what we're doing we're like oh sorry we'll close the door and they're like no leave it open leave it come by our room next and there was just this power that we i felt that, that we all kind of felt and i knew that i had to do something with that to give that to more people than just my family to experience that with more people than just my family and music meets medicine was born. Mm-hmm. And like with, uh, you know, your organization music meets medicine. And I know you've worked with, uh, I think it's the emotional PPE project. Yeah. I kind of yeah. wanted to ask, um, you know, during like the idea of COVID, um, mm-hmm. you know, how do you have, I guess, how do you express like emotional support and empathy during a time of social distancing and, you know, you have to stay medically safe. It's very difficult, man. It's very difficult. And it honestly, like not away, you know, from me as, as a provider, because that's one of my strengths, man. Like one of, one of my strengths as a physician is being in a room with somebody and holding their hand and looking them in the eye and telling them that they have a very serious diagnosis. Maybe that they even have a terminal diagnosis that, that kind of, um, empathy is uh, not unique to, but very strong in creative people. And I have that, you know, and, and when you're, you know, behind layers of personal protective equipment and, you know, N95s and face shields and double gloves and all this stuff, something is lost. Something is absolutely lost. And at one point, very early on, before we even understood it very well, and whether we would even have enough PPE to be able to do these invasive procedures, there was a time where I wasn't even going fully in these rooms to take care of the people because we had to, we had to be very judicious with the resources that we had. Because every time you go into a room and you're touching a patient, um, you essentially are burning that PPE. That PPE is lost forever. You're throwing this stuff away, and so you know we had to be very careful with how we spent it, and so. Did did COVID and all of the isolation that came along with COVID interfere with connecting with my patients? Absolutely. Mm. And and that was one of the hardest things of, about, you know, the, the pandemic was the emotional disconnect with patients and with family members and with friends. And all of a sudden I went from this guy that honestly, like, loved to be around people and people loved to be around me to this leper that you know, was very high risk. Everybody basically, because I was an ER doctor, everybody thanked me and was like, you're a hero, you know, but then they were like, but stay away because you're probably, you know, more, more at risk to be infected than anyone else that I know, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that was real hard for me being such a people person, you know, and being such a social person to be so distanced from so many people for so long. Um, and that's part of the reason why, you know, I, I, in all honesty, jumped on board with the vaccine very early on because I was like, I just like everybody else need hope. I need to take a step forward in the right direction. And this is the best shot that we have. So here we go, baby. I mean, I was like, I was day one when they released it to the medical workers of America after that, you know, 40,000 person trial that Pfizer did. I was day one getting, getting my first shot. And, uh, and fortunately, <laughs> you know, it was, it did prove to be as safe and effective as, uh, as the study showed. Mm-hmm. 
And kind of uh, when you bring up the idea of the vaccine and, you know, needing that to move forward so you can finally, you know, get a, rid of like the idea of social distancing and, you know, not have to have the the heavy PPE use to mm. express empathy. I wanted to ask about kind of like the idea of vaccine hesitancy in this country and, you know, how often, you know, I guess percentage wise or, you know, the amount of people you speak to that, um, you know, don't believe in the uh, vaccine or don't want to take it. And is there any like external factors that you think are leading into uh, that degree of hesitancy? Honestly, if this were, you know, like the 30s, then almost all of America would be vaccinated right now, you know. Mm. Um, but with the, you know, unlimited access to information, good and bad, um, people people don't know where to turn. They don't know what information they can trust and, and who they can trust. And the easier thing to do is to do nothing. The easier thing to do is to choose to do nothing. But in a pandemic where you're almost guaranteed to get COVID, <laughs> unless you were truly just in your house all day, every day, mm-hmm. you are passively choosing to get COVID. You know, the likelihood that that someone is going to get COVID during this pandemic <laughs> is absurdly high. So whether or not they really realizing it, they are choosing COVID. Now, whether they're going to have a really easy go at it and not end up, you know, one of the roughly 33% of the people that end up with long COVID, you know, you know, who, who knows, you know, that, that is, that is fate to determine. Right. But, um, but again, the, the easier, and this is the same thing that we saw when, you know, the whole like MMR vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella vaccines cause autism. People were scared about that. And they read a lot of articles that said, yeah, maybe this is true. And so they were frozen. They were frozen, but they didn't really realize that, that by, passively choosing the passive route which is to not get vaccinated they are truly choosing the much riskier route you know and um and and we're seeing that play out right now but to answer your your question uh, i mean absolutely hands down the ease of access to information whether good or bad um contributed everything to this vaccine hesitancy this way around Mm -hmm. and it's crazy because when i talk to people about it in person they trust me. Like I see it in their eyes. They trust me. But the minute that I say something online, the, the, it, it puts people in two different camps, the people that already believed in the vaccine and the people that already didn't believe in the vaccine. And they will comment on my post and call me a paid actor, which I get because I was a paid actor like a decade ago. So like, yeah, I was an actor at some point. Yeah, you can IMDB me, but that doesn't mean that I'm getting paid to talk about vaccines. I've never taken any sort of payout from any pharmaceutical company for anything and I haven't promoted any, you know, I've done, I've done like some vitamins at one point, but never gotten paid to promote vaccines. And, um, I just truly believe in them. And I know that, uh, this is, this is our best shot, you know? And it, I, I think it is very interesting though, that people are very hesitant about the vaccine, but not hesitant whatsoever about these other treatments that are coming out. I'm not telling people that they should be hesitant, but like the monoclonal antibodies or general stuff like that, the vaccines are more well studied than that, but because there hasn't been as much misinformation on that, they choose to forego the vaccine, wait until they get COVID, and then beg me for Regeneron and the monoclonal antibodies, 
which fortunately they do seem to be like a really great option for people. But it is funny to me that, that there's this, there's this divide there where again, there's much more information and many more studies on the vaccines than there are these other treatments that are coming out. Mm -hmm. When you kind of bring up the idea of, uh, you know, the massive access and easy access to information, you know, I know that you're definitely grateful on the idea that TikTok has allowed you to make, you know, cool educational videos on, you know, different medical topics. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to, but, you know, at the same point, you know, you probably have seen like TikTok accounts that have spread conspiracy theories or things that weren't medically (laughs) accurate. So I wanted to ask, like, uh, maybe not COVID specifically, but is there any uh, maybe viral videos or trends you've seen that you didn't think were medically accurate when you saw them? Um, And also, like, uh, you know, with both sides of TikTok, are you still optimistic on like the positive use that um, something like TikTok can have towards educational purposes? Um, I am positive. I, I, I'm very positive and optimistic about, you know, the, the impact that it can have on people's lives. Because at the end of the day, while it's caused a lot of vaccine hesitancy, it also, social media has been very good for people to take control of their own health. There was a mindset growing up in America that you could eat anything you want and exercise as little as you want and you would just take a pill when you get older and everything will be fine and you'll have a long, healthy life. And we're getting away from that. And that's awesome. I freaking love that. Mm -hmm. People, for some reason, think that that's what doctors wanted, which is never what we wanted. We just cannot personally be responsible for everyone's health all day, every day. Doctors want people to take personal responsibility. We want you to exercise. We want you to diet uh, and eat and eat healthy. But we can't guide you on every single step, whether we're a primary care doc or whether we're your TikTok doc. <laughs> that has to be you and, and your research. Mm-hmm. And so while it has created interesting conundrums like the vaccine hesitancy, overall, this very well may have a positive effect on the health of our nation in that people are taking this personal responsibility to track down their own sources of information, good or bad, but at least move in the right direction, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, if they go down the rabbit hole of this essential oil is gonna cure cancer, now that's not gonna lead to good outcomes. And there are people out there, unfortunately, that are Mm -hmm. snake oil salesmen and that will put somebody's life at risk because they wanna sell their product. And that is terribly disheartening to me. Uh, But, um, there is there is a lot of positive information out there about you know, the ways that you can kind of hack your life on a regular basis to be more healthy overall. And I'm optimistic to, that that outweighs the snake oil salesman. Mm-hmm. And with like the with your organization, Music Meets Medicine, um, and kind of like spreading the awareness on TikTok with Music Meets Medicine, is there? I, I was kind of wondering on that, like with. Is there anything specific about like music comparative to 
other creative ideas or anything else, um, you know, that provides such a good coping mechanism for people mm. going through very traumatic situations or, you know, just got out of uh, very traumatic procedures. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, art therapy is also something that, that I'm a big supporter of. I don't um, personally have any skill in the visual arts <laughs> other than like performing myself. Mm-hmm. And so I really have nothing to bring to the table um, when it comes to that. But but anything that can provide um, one kind of a therapeutic escape, um, you know, when you're in a hospital setting, an inpatient setting, when you're getting, like, like we were talking about, my mom's hour long, two hour long chemotherapy infusions, anything that is drawing attention away from that infusion and the terrible unease, nausea and pain that they're feeling, um, I, I, I'm a huge supporter of and art, art therapy is one of those. Um, but also just like, you know, the, the emotional processing aspect of things. If you're, you know, if you're engaging with, with creative writing, if you're, if you're writing poems or storylines, um, if you're making certain drawings to help you emotionally process, if you're writing songs to help you emotionally process the fact that you have a terminal illness. I mean, these music therapists um, that, that we support in the children's hospitals will write songs with these like five-year-old children about how they're going to be in heaven one day, you know, and it's so heavy, but what a great way to introduce that concept or to help them write a book about it. And then the parents get to keep that forever, the final product, you know? Um, and it's just, it's, it's beautiful and it's tragic. And, and that's one of the things that I love about the emergency room in general is that the emergency room is beautiful and it's tragic all at the same time. I, I, I tell people that I brought their family member back. They were dead and they're alive now. It's amazing. But I also tell their family members that there's absolutely nothing we could do. Um, and they were, you know, past the point of, of no return. Or I, again, I tell people they have cancer, that they lost their baby. And, uh, and there's a lot of tragedy in the emergency department. Though there's also a lot of like love and beauty and support that you see in those moments too. And it's all just wrapped up into this one emotional experience. And, and I'm a deep feeler, man. And that's like, that's part of like, you know, the artistic side of me, the creative side of me that, that truly thrives and, and enjoys the emergency department is like the depth of experience that, that you have there. And so it's only natural that these, these two worlds, while seemingly completely distinct, the nonprofit music therapy world and the emergency rooms seem like these two separate things to me. It's all this like one beautifully tragic emotional experience for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know with uh, kind of we, we've talked about kind of your family's backgrounds and kind of coming from an early age of, um, you know, acting and music. But I, I guess from the other side, was it uh, you know, was there an early background in the idea of philanthropy? Because I remember like seeing something about, uh, I think it was like the Slaughter Art Awards or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's something that that we created. It's a it's a program within Music Meets Medicine where we raise money um, to promote youth fine arts programs um, in in Dallas Fort Worth and and artists um, themselves individually. You can go to SlaughterFamilyArtsAwards.org and we kind of have two separate programs. There's a Slaughter Family Arts Awards where we are 
you know, basically trying to, to create a culture and community within these individual schools. And we're slowly going to incorporate more schools, but we didn't want to be so exclusive. And so we just opened it up and said, basically, anyone from the greater Fort Worth area can apply to the Ambassador of the Arts Awards. And so in total, let's see. Is... What is that? 12, yeah, 12, so 12 and a half to $13,000 are given away every year um, towards young artists in, in the area through those two programs kind of combined. Um, but that's not necessarily something that we've been doing for a long time. That's We started that actually right as the pandemic hit. <laughs> kind of crazy timing, crazy timing. And we were going to have this big in-person event and it became this online thing and just kind of rolling with the punches, but just like moving forward and, and mm-hmm. you know, Fortunately, we've we've been able, I think, to do a lot of good with that. But growing up, I was around some very successful uh, people. My great grandfather was a, a very successful businessman in in the oil business, um, and while he didn't give back to the greater community to any kind of grand extent, he was a patriarch, and he's he's the man that I'm named after. That's where J Mac came from. That was his nickname. His his nickname became Daddy Mac after a while because he got older and everything. But his nickname was J Mac growing up because Mac back in the day was like buddy or pal, right? And so he was named Mac, you know, Zachary. And and this uh, factory that he took a job in, he was just a factory worker initially. And there was a time punch, you know, there was already a Mac on it. So they used his first initial, which was J for Jesse. And uh, J Mac kind of was born and that name got passed down through the years. But he was very much a, a, a philanthropist in, in a familial sense. Um, and he gave um, to support my private school education and to make sure that I had braces when I turned 13 and to make sure that I had a car to get to these boy band shows and all this stuff. And, and I, I very much um, was given more than I could ever give back. And I get emotional thinking about it because, you know, obviously he's gone now. And I know that he would be really proud of the things that we've been able to accomplish in, in the nonprofit philanthropy space. But I feel like I am owed a great debt or I owe a great debt. Um, and the only way that I can begin to repay it is to pay it forward. And so that's one of that's one of the things that drives me in the, in the philanthropic world. Uh, and then, you know, there's, there's another person that inspired me and that's a really, uh, very successful man. Um, my great, great, great grandfather, his name's Colonel CC slaughter. And he basically owned West Texas. <laughs> he, like, he owned like over a million acres and, um, he'd founded Baylor Dallas. Um, so Baylor hospital in Dallas, uh, was, was founded, you know, primarily by Colonel C.C. Slaughter. And they actually, they still have, you know, big, big photos of him up and, and like, you know, big boards showing like the beginnings of Baylor. And, and it's always his like man goatee that'll never be able to grow. <laughs> that I'll always be en- envious of. But got some big, big, you know, ancestral shoes to fill there. <laughs> um, but he was uh, obviously a very driven, successful person and uh, and and was very, focused on on giving back to the community and he also gave back to many religious organizations and um baptist churches and stuff like that and and so yeah that's also kind of part of where my inspiration and my drive comes from is is trying to um kind of uh, do do him proud as well in a way even though i never met the guy (laughs) 
Well, I guess to kind of wrap up the episode, I really just wanted to ask on, you know, any upcoming projects with the expansion of or, you know, anything involved with music meets medicine. I also know you have the uh, the uh, Safe Life vending business going on. Uh, you know, if anything's coming <laughs> on with of, that. We got a lot of projects. Got a lot of projects. <laughs> Safe Life vending is kind of interesting uh, because it's, it's going to transform um, into custom clothing lines for influencers. We'll talk about that on, on a different podcast. Um, but Music Meets Medicine, actually today, I literally, one of the reasons why um, I was like rushing to put, I put my two-year-old down like five minutes before we started this pod- podcast. Unfortunately, he's been sleeping the whole time, so I haven't had to like run out there and get him. Um, but we were, we just donated 25 instruments to Dallas Children's Hospital, 20 ukuleles and five guitars to continue to support them. Um, and, uh, you know, not only do we want to, you know, kind of bolster um, their inventory of instruments so they can feel free to use or give away these instruments and then we'll continue to fill their inventory. But also we offer free um, music lessons online to patients that are at the hospital or even patients that have been discharged. Um, every Wednesday at a certain time, there's a QR code um, and a link to get into our Zoom classes that are totally free of charge. And really, you you just have to either have recently had you know an acute hospitalization or have a chronic condition, and then you're in, man. We'll teach you how to play, and uh, and we'll do our best to get you an instrument if you don't already have it. Um, and so those are the big moves moving forward is continuing to expand Music Meets Medicine. I have a new director of operation, this guy, um, Phoenix Rose, um, who uh, has created the Weatherford Music Academy and Alito Music Academy, just rapidly, rapidly growing um, his clients and uh, really kind of being a, a positive ambassador for music. And I'm like, this guy is a star. We need him to help grow Music Meets Medicine. So together, I think that we're going to do really wonderful things. Um, and of course, uh, follow me at Dr. J. Max Slaughter on Instagram or at Dr. J. Max Slaughter underscore MD on TikTok. And we're just going to keep blowing up there. It's crazy that it's been going as well as it has because I started in January and I have been very dedicated and consistent, you know, posting almost once every single day. And we're up to... Um, something like almost 325,000 followers and well over 30 million views so far. So I'm just, I want to keep that going and keep that blowing up and try to figure out how I can incorporate that into the nonprofit world to continue giving back. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I wanted to, you know, thank you again for, you know, not just <laughs> coming on the podcast to kind of explain your story. I mean, it, I mean, it goes everywhere from acting to TikToks <laughs> to the medical field. Um, but honestly, this is off just the wall kind of... is my personality, right? It kind of makes sense <laughs> when you meet me. You're like, oh, that's why this guy's done so much stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, has this like ball of energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but also just on top of the just the story, just kind of the input you're able to give on just the the kind of how COVID has affected maybe mm-hmm. conspiracy theories like the mm-hmm. polarization of social media, especially with TikTok, and also just kind of expressing empathy during a time of social distancing. I thought that was just kind of all really bizarre stories, you know, just across mm-hmm. the spectrum. But honestly, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the episode. My man, I had a blast, dude. Mm-hmm. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. 
stay connected with us directly through the platinummask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at graymask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.